The greatest story ever told begins with the greatest tragedy ever imagined. The infinite and eternal God, creator of heaven and earth, created man in His image for fellowship and for worship. And He places the man and woman in the Garden of Eden, a paradise that they would know and enjoy God. And it's not long into the story that we find this greatest of all tragedies. The first human couple turning away from the God who loved them and gave them life. Now, they did not decide one day after much deliberation that they were going to revolt against their Creator. Such an idea would have never come to mind. But in chapter 3, we find that they were seduced by a tempter. Satan, which means accuser or slanderer, comes to them in the form of a serpent, the preeminent source of distortion and deception. His target was the woman, and his agenda was to persuade her that God was withholding something from her that was supremely valuable. There was a forbidden tree, it was beautiful to the eyes. It had the potential to make one wise, and yet it was under divine restriction. And so the tempter put a devious idea into the mind of the woman. He suggests to her that this God she worships is not really good at all. I mean, if He was, how could He withhold such a thing? Something so appealing to the senses. And he seduces her with his words, and his seduction worked. Not long after she succumbs, her husband joins her, and their life of perfection and beauty turns into a life of corruption and hardship. Rather than gaining wisdom and becoming like God, which is what they were promised, they were driven out of the garden and out of relationship with their Creator. This is what the tempter set out to accomplish, and this is what he achieved. He put a barrier between the people and their God that neither they nor their offspring could remedy. And so mankind becomes trapped in this dystopian world of sin. And possibly the most sinister aspect of this condition is that they come to resemble the tempter in that they now have the ability to seduce others. The tempted become the tempters. The seduced become the seducers. While man is made in the image of God, he is also broken to the point that his sinfulness is uncontainable. And it is often expressed in such a way that it entices others to sin. Satan goes from being the chief source of temptation in the universe to multiplying this evil work through human agency. The very ones made in God's image, created to know and glorify Him, become a stumbling block to one another. 
This is the world in which we live. In every facet of life, in every one of man's endeavors, in all of his activities, in everything he sets out to accomplish, there is the presence of sin and there is the capacity to cause others to sin. That which began in Genesis chapter 3 continues on to this day, and with all of our technological advances, man is now able to do it on a much larger scale. Corrupting words that were once only between one person to another can now be broadcast to millions of people through books, radio, movies, television, internet. I remember as a young and naive Christian, a co-worker of mine told me that he liked to listen to Howard Stern on the radio on the way to work every morning. And so I had heard the name, I didn't really know who he was, so I decided I was going to tune in to the Howard Stern show on the radio. And I remember how utterly blasphemous it was. It was perverse. It was ungodly, and quite frankly, it was not even funny. I mean, I still catch myself laughing at inappropriate things sometimes. This wasn't even funny. It was degrading, and it was... I just pictured this broadcast. Here's this man sitting in this studio, speaking evil and perverse things into a microphone, and it is being broadcast to millions of people and being injected into their minds every morning. Picture Google Maps. You ever seen Google Maps? And you could see the whole United States at night with all the places lit up. I just pictured, we didn't have it back then, but I just pictured like the U.S. and, and all of these people, millions upon millions. It was the number one show in the nation. Having all of this depravity injected into their thoughts, all of these perverse ideas, all of these twisted, corrupt words, every morning, things that are contrary to the will of God. The tempted become the tempters, the seduced become the seducers. Now, surely this kind of widespread contamination has been around since the printing press. People then finally had the ability to disseminate their lies and their ungodly ideas to large audiences. And as technology continues to advance, the fallen sons of Adam are given even a greater platform today in the internet. Acts of sin that were once done in private are broadcast for millions to see. The most base and illicit exploits now have a way into your home. People can engage in all kinds of immorality and upload it in just a few minutes with audiences in the millions. People who are trapped in their sin now spreading that sin to corrupt others. The tempted become the tempters. The seduced become the seducers. 
Now, those are obvious examples of how man causes others to sin, but there are less obvious ways in which we can cause others to sin through our words and through our actions. You and I might not corrupt others in the way that the world does, but we can trip others up in more subtle ways. We too can be the tempters. And because this is a reality, Jesus gives a warning to His disciples. I'm reading from the ESV, and if you look in verse 1, it says, temptations to sin. But you might have a translation that says stumbling blocks. That's what it is in the Greek, the original language. The act of putting something in front of another to cause them to trip. It's the language used to describe the setting of a trap. So you and I have this kind of influence over one another and hence the need for a warning. Let us consider our text again. Jesus says to His disciples, temptations to sin or stumbling blocks are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, we saw in the last chapter Jesus confronting the Pharisees. And what we have in Luke now is a transition where he now instructs his disciples. In fact, you can find this pattern throughout the Gospel of Luke. Jesus will have a teaching for the crowds, and then He will have a teaching for His disciples, and then He will have some issues with the Pharisees, and then back to teaching His disciples, and it sort of goes back and forth. And what we're going to see over the next few weeks, verses 1-10, through are various aspects of discipleship. Jesus is going to switch from one topic to another, introducing the disciples to various issues they will face in this world. So, he will speak on the necessity of forgiveness, verses 3 through 4, the importance of faith in verses 5 through 6, and the need for humility in verses 7 through 10. That's all in future weeks. But to start off this sort of series of teachings, he speaks about the subject of temptation. So, we know that the warning is given to the disciples, but who are the ones that we are to protect? In other words, who should we be concerned not to stumble? So, we'll have to look ahead to verse 2. He says that we must not cause one of these little ones to sin. And so, a good question would be, who is that? Well, I had Richard read Matthew's account. And in Matthew's account, Jesus is speaking about children. In fact, he brings a child into the midst of them, and he's speaking about how the disciples must be like children and how they ought not lead children astray. And I think he's specifically talking about children in that episode. But here in Luke, I think he's talking about just believers in general And more specifically, immature believers. 
or newly converted believers. So I think little ones here is an affectionate way to refer to Christians. Perhaps he's, he's referring to those who came to hear him back in chapter 15. If you remember, the tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear Jesus. If this sounds really weird to you that Jesus would refer to believers as little children, uh, John the Apostle also refers to them as such. In his first epistle, he calls them little children, if you remember that, and he contrasts that with more mature believers, young men and fathers. So I believe Jesus here is focusing on the church and how we must avoid causing other believers to sin. We are to never place a stumbling block before a child of God and cause them to uh, and be a source of temptation to them. Now, Jesus begins by framing this in the context of our present experience. Notice in verse 1. He says, temptations to sin are sure to come. Now, there is a certainty that sin brings in a fallen world. And if you have lived in this world long enough, you will have faced temptations of every kind. We all wrestle with it. We all try to suppress it in our lives, but it is a sad reality that reminds us of our fallen condition. And the focus for the disciple is to contain that sin so that it does not encourage others to follow that same course. In other words, don't be a tempter. Don't be a seducer. And he warns us against this because it is something that you can do if you are not careful. Now, how can you and I cause others to sin? I mentioned it a minute ago. First, we can do it with our words. The Proverbs are full of warnings about our speech because we have the ability to use our words to put thoughts in other people's minds that could cause them to think or act in a way that is contrary to the ways of God. This is why it says in Proverbs 10.19, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is wise. In other words, the more you talk, the more you have an opportunity to sin with your words. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So you can bring life to the hearer, meaning encouraging and upbuilding words, words that point him or her to God. Or you can speak destructive words, words that tear down, words that discourage. You can gossip with your words. You can slander with your words. You can invite a new believer into your circle of friends and fill their minds with all kinds of murmuring and complaining. You can 
slander someone else in the church in the mind of that other person so that they have a distorted view of that other person. You can drag that other person through the mud in this person's thinking. I mean, these are the kinds of things that causes that cause churches to split. This, this kind of spreading of words. Or you can hurt other people with your words. Instead of building them up, you're constantly tearing them down. Constantly pointing out their faults. Instead of encouraging them on the path of righteousness, you can pull them off course with just a few words. And if you have newer believers who don't have the maturity to respond in righteousness, you then cause them to sin. This can happen in our homes with our young people. Always words of criticism. Always pointing out what they're not doing. Never an encouraging word. Never pointing out any kind of maturity or growth in them. So you can be a tempter to others by your words or you can be a tempter by your actions. You could ruin another believer by rolling right over their conscience, encouraging them to do something that they think is sin. Paul wrote an entire chapter on this subject, Romans 14. There were weaker believers in the church who believed it was a sin to eat meat and that you should only eat vegetables. And then there were the meat eaters who understood their freedom in Christ and so there's this conflict in the church because the meat eaters want to eat meat because they have freedom and the weaker believers, the younger believers, think it's a sin. So what does Paul say? Straighten out their theology? No. He says, do not cause another brother to go against his conscience. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it. Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Then he goes on to say in verse 20, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So there's a concern here about causing other Christians to sin not by things that are sinful. That's the, that's the interesting dynamic here. It's not sinful to eat the meat. It is sinful to cause another believer to stumble in their walk with God. So he says it's better that you abstain of those good things that God has given than you march ahead and go ahead with it and have another believer damaged because of it. So I think there is a place to help a younger believer or maybe even an older believer 
to point them to the Scriptures to help them understand things about whether something is sinful or not sinful, but you do not want to encourage them in anything that defiles their conscience. There's a similar issue in the Corinthian church with eating food sacrificed to idols. There were new believers coming out of a pagan background. They believed anything offered in sacrifice to an idol would be defiled and unholy. And so, because idols can't eat meat, pagans would offer the meat to the idol and then they would go and still sell it in the marketplace because it's still just meat. And the new, the, the pagan believers, the, the Gentile believers said, oh, 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 you can't do that. That's sinful. And Paul says, food is food and an idol is nothing. However, if a Christian believes it is wrong, it is dishonoring to God and he should abstain, you should not encourage him to go against his conscience. In other words, don't say, well, just man up and eat it. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8, he says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You see that language again. Don't trip up your brother. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Now this is very strong language. He says you're destroying your Christian brother by doing something in his presence that he thinks is a sin, even if it's not a sin. So if he does not have the maturity to distinguish good from evil, it's not okay for you to just say, well, I have liberty in Christ and the Bible doesn't say it's a sin, so I'm just going to go ahead and press on. No, you become the devil's tool by damaging that Little one. To lead another Christian to do something that he does not think is right is setting a trap for him. This is the same kind of stumbling block I think Jesus is talking about in Luke 17. It's setting another believer up to trip and to fall. Listen to what James says in chapter 3. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Why? Because a teacher in the church has the ability to do great damage by disseminating words to groups of people and putting ideas about God into people's minds. And if those are wrong ideas... That could give people wrong impressions about what God is like. It could give a false view of what you are like. I could give you a lesser view of God if I do not teach correctly. I could give you an inflated view of yourself. 
Or I could teach legalistic law keeping and have you under a yoke of slavery. And so this too is putting stumbling blocks in the paths of little children. James goes on in that chapter, if you've read James chapter 3, to talk about how powerful the tongue is and how we can be like the tempter, causing others to sin. Now, how important is this to the Lord? Well, back to Luke 17, one merely needs to see how he describes the penalty to know the seriousness of it. Let's look at our text again. He said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. In other words, don't you be that person. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, Jesus does not shy away from using horrifying imagery to make a point. There were two different kinds of millstones that are described by the same Greek word. One would be a smaller one where you could grind a meal in preparation for a meal. So you would take your grains and you would grind it sort of like a tabletop thing. And then there was a massive one-foot-thick stone that weighed thousands of pounds that was turned by an animal to grind corn or wheat or whatever. And Luke does not make the distinction here, but Jesus uses this same illustration or imagery in Matthew's Gospel, and there He uses the word mega before millstone, talking about tying around the neck and dropping into the sea. And so because it's the same kind of horrific imagery, I think it's obvious that he's talking about the massive stone. So, imagine the horror of having something so heavy tied around your neck and having it dropped into the ocean. Now, I have a fear of the deep and vast ocean. I think it's a healthy fear, but it terrifies me, the thought. In fact, I remember the last time we went on a cruise and I was standing there at night, I think it was toward the back of the ship, and just looking out with just blackness all around us in every direction you can look, just blackness. And thinking how horrifying it would be to fall overboard and to be treading water out there miles from the shore with darkness all around, darkness miles beneath me. And I just thought, what a horrible, horrible way to die. <laughs> just creeps me out. You don't know what's under you. <clears throat> The Jews also had a great fear of the sea. They were not a, seer, a, sea fear, a seafaring people. The Jews were not seafaring. 
Yes, you had fishermen who worked on local bodies of water like the Sea of Galilee. But deep sea fishermen or sailors who spent their days on the open ocean were Gentile. In fact, in the book of Revelation, when it describes the new heavens and the new earth, do you ever wonder why it says, and there was no sea? I think that is a symbol. I think that is to portray an image of safety, of security, of well-being. There are no big, vast, dark chasms that are frightening on this new heavens and new earth. So this imagery of being plunged into the sea would be a particularly frightening image for the Jews, for the audience of Jesus. Add to that the idea of a weight dragging you down to the bottom. I mean, I've been thinking about this all week. It would pull you down so quickly that you would probably hit the bottom of the ocean and still have some breath in your lungs. So in other words, it would pull you down, excuse the expression, at breakneck speed. And you would probably still be alive by the time it hit the bottom. And you would be trapped in utter darkness and unable to take a breath. Horrifying. Horrifying image. I think of the horrible fate that awaits those false teachers who broadcast their messages across the world and who mislead the ignorant who lie to the people and sell them a system of works, or who lie to the people and sell them the opposite. Everyone's going to heaven someday. God's going to save everyone in the end. Or charlatans that bilk old people out of their retirement money with promises of health and wealth if they just send their money in to their ministry. I think of the cults who gather together disciples to follow a different Jesus. Those who go door to door deceiving and being deceived. Leading people astray from the true and living God. Or so-called Christian authors who write books or teach at conferences who say the Old Testament sexual ethic is not applicable to our day. And God made you to be a homosexual. Or men who teach in certain seminaries, if we can even call them that, who are so lost themselves they don't even believe the Bible. And young people going to seminary thinking they're going to get into some kind of ministry end up leaving there as skeptics or agnostics. Or the millstone around the neck makes me think of this one YouTube video I saw years ago where this Episcopalian priest put a video together encouraging women who are having abortions that God was with them and they need not be afraid. And she quoted things like Romans 8.28 and she quoted some of the Psalms and she said that they did not have to fear when they went into that office to have their child killed because God... God's hand was on theirs, and He was with them. 
Now, this text frightens me. The millstone around the neck frightens me. Apparently, it doesn't frighten them. And so these different types of people continue on with their mangling of Scripture and their misuse of their office, leading young, impressionable believers to sin. Now notice, Jesus does not say, this will be their fate. Look at the verse again. Verse 2. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. In other words, when this kind of person comes into judgment, and if they were given a choice between the millstone in the bottom of the deep dark sea or what God has reserved for those who lead people astray, he said that that's what you would choose. If you had that choice, which you don't. But you would choose that. And so this warning is for all those kinds of people I mentioned. The ones who corrupt people's minds with false doctrine. The ones who corrupt people's minds with lies about sexuality or abortion or some kind of sin that God is clear about in the Scriptures, leading them to go and practice such a sin. But the warning is also for us. Now, we might not deny essential doctrine. We might not teach what the cults teach. We might not encourage someone in their sexual sin. But the warning is for us too. Now, it's hard to know how this Scripture can be applied to the believer because there's no condemnation in Christ. If you belong to Christ, if you have been born of the Spirit of God, you belong to Him, there is no condemnation for you. And yet the warning is for the disciples just the same. So, it's a frightening enough image to me to where I want to do everything I can to encourage other believers in faith and to not point them in the wrong direction, whether theologically or whether towards some kind of sin. If God's judgment is so severe in this area for precious young believers that this image of the millstone in the ocean would be preferable to His judgment, that makes me want to be very careful. So I ask you, beloved, should we not be cautious in how we speak to our brothers and sisters in the church? Should we not seek to set a good example in the home so that our children do not see two different kinds of parents. The Sunday at church kind and the rest of the week kind. Leading them to stumble and to sin. Should we not be very careful to handle the Scriptures rightly so that when we speak of them, when we speak to others of God, we have a solid foundation 
rooted in the Word of God and not in the teachings of men. Now, I don't believe this means that God expects us to have perfect theology and that if you mess up at one point, yeah, you know, baptism was supposed to be sprinkled and not dunked. Oh, millstone. I don't believe that. But I think the point is that we are to do whatever we can to look out for one another and especially those among us who are the least among us. Do not set a stumbling block in front of another. Now, one way we are to look after one another is that we are to confront them when they sin. And that is what we are going to talk about next time. So, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that you love your church. We know that Christ died for His church. And we know, Lord, that those who belong to Christ have His perfect righteousness. All of our sin placed on Him. All of His righteousness given to us. So that this kind of damnation would not be our experience. And yet at the same time, Lord, is this not a strong warning? And so I pray that You would help us to walk in Your ways, to walk faithfully with You, to be quick to repent if we have ever led another believer astray, if we have ever brought another believer into our bitterness or gossip or slander, if we have ever encouraged another believer in some area that might not be sin, but it is sin to them. Please help us, we pray, Lord, that we would walk in holiness with our God and encouraging others to do the same. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.